This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. Can you believe what President Trump did just recently? Unbelievable. He has ordered a purge of critical race theory from federal agencies. I've never seen anything like this, and it is long overdue, but I am so delighted to see it because this is a theory, as we know, that has infiltrated absolutely everything around us, seemingly in culture. We see it in Hollywood. We see it on the streets of our cities with all of this Antifa and Black Lives Matter unrest. And we all know what this underlying theory is, this critical race theory, at least those of us who have been paying attention to what's going on in these law schools with people like Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw and her intersectionality. This idea that there is perpetual racism, white supremacy, everybody's a racist. You can't possibly get rid of it. There's no repentance. There's no forgiveness. There's no redemption whatsoever. You have to change the social structures. That's basically what it's all about. This whole theoretical framework is developed, as people will know, out of Marxism, and it's developed out of postmodern philosophy. It's not about individual or psychological factors or social factors, per se, that that indicate why there are problems in society. No, no, no. They believe that social problems are due to the structures. Now, this would, of course, beg the question, how was it then that we fought a civil war to get rid of slavery? If we're inherently racist as a majority white nation, as we were back in 1865, why in the world did we go to war over the issue? And why in the world do we pass the Civil Rights Act of 1964 in response to all of the outcry about segregation if white people are inherently racist? White people went to the mat in order to rectify some of these horrible injustices that truly were perpetuated against black people in this country. Nobody wants to talk about that because when you want to have a revolution that advances Marxist philosophy, you have to come up with an excuse. It started with George Floyd, then it went to Breonna Taylor. We keep changing people. Now it's, you know, Rochester, New York. It's somebody else. And now it's somebody else in this other city. doesn't really matter. It's just a pretext to commit violence violence and to overthrow America. That's where we are in the United States today. So this brings me to this new development from President Trump. I applaud it wholeheartedly. I'm standing up applauding with all of the gusto I can manage. But the White House Office of Management and Budget has now put out this memo moving to identify and eliminate any trace of critical race theory in the federal government. Now, you might say, I'm not really sure what critical race theory is. I kind of described it before, but this is from the UCLA School of Public Affairs. This is how they say it. Critical race theory developed out of legal scholarship, providing a critical analysis of race and racism from a legal point of view. It has basic tenets that guide its framework. And here's what they say. CRT, or critical race theory, recognizes that racism is ingrained in the fabric and system of the American society. That's a pretty broad premise that is unfounded. It is not I think even up for legitimate debate that there are people who have been racists, the Ku Klux Klan, for example, the David Dukes of the world. We've seen racism, I would argue, 
from every race toward other races, because that's part of the sinful nature of man is to hate other people, to want other people to be harmed. It's just part of the fall, folks. And we've seen this again and again and again. I would never deny that there are individual people who have been horrible racists. But to say that every single person, because their skin color is white, they're racists and they can't ever get over it is insane. And all it is is an excuse, as I said before, for a revolution. Now, here's what's interesting about this. There is a journalist by the name of Christopher Rufo who works over at City Journal, and he actually was on with Tucker Carlson on Fox talking about this before President Trump decided to go forward, and I think deserves a lot of credit for calling on the Trump administration to do what they have just done. I want you to listen first to cut one. This is something I've been investigating for the last six months, and it's absolutely astonishing how critical race theory has pervaded every institution in the federal government. And what I've discovered is that critical race theory has become, in essence, the default ideology of the federal bureaucracy and is now being weaponized against the American people. I'd like to share three investigations that I've unleashed uh, that show the kind of depth of this critical race theory, occult indoctrination, uh, and the danger and destruction it can wreak. Uh, First, the Treasury Department. Uh, I broke the story on the Treasury Department, which held uh, a a seminar uh, earlier this year uh, from a man named Howard Ross, uh, a diversity trainer who has billed the federal government more than $5 million over the past 15 years, uh, conducting seminars on critical race theory. Uh, And he told Treasury employees essentially that America was a fundamentally uh, white supremacist country. And I quote, virtually all white people uphold the system of racism and white superiority and was essentially denouncing the country and asking white employees at the Treasury Department and affiliated organizations uh, to accept their white privilege, uh, accept uh, their white uh, racial superiority uh, and accept uh, essentially uh, all of the uh, baggage that comes uh, with this reducible essence of whiteness. Goodness. And there's more that he talked about as well. Listen to cut two. Second, this is not by any means limited to the Treasury Department. Critical race theory has actually now infiltrated uh, our criminal justice system. Uh, Just this week, I released a story that the FBI is now holding weekly seminars on intersectionality, uh, which is a hard left academic theory uh, that reduces people to a network of racial, gender, and sexual orientation identities uh, that intersect in complex ways and determine whether you are an oppressor or oppressed. Uh, Obviously, with the white straight male, such as FBI Director Christopher Wray uh, being at the top of this pyramid of evil. And third, this is a major story. Uh, critical race theory is now uh, infiltrating into our scientific establishment. Uh, a few weeks ago, I released a story uh, that critical race theorists uh, at the Sandia National Laboratories, uh, which creates our nuclear weapons arsenal, uh, sent their white male executives on a three-day re-education camp uh, to deconstruct their white male culture uh, and actually force them to write letters of apology uh, to women and people of color. Uh, whistleblowers within Sandia National Laboratories have now spoken out, uh, but laboratory executives have dispatched counterintelligence teams uh, to quickly erase their communications, uh, silence and shut them down. Well, think about this for a moment. The fact that he talks about CRT infecting our criminal justice system and the FBI in particular gives me one more reason to not trust the FBI and actually to be very concerned for this country because we need a working FBI that is not ideologically compromised in such a way that it's undermining American values, which is exactly 
exactly what CRT is doing. And for the scientific establishment to be going down this road is also very scary. You shouldn't have some kind of weird philosophy coming out of the mind of Derek Bell and his cohorts in American law schools guiding you in any significant way in fields where it shouldn't even come up. I'm not saying that the issue of race shouldn't come up when it comes to criminal justice. That's fine, but not critical race theory. Then Christopher Rufo calls upon President Trump to put a stop to all of it. And of course he did. But listen to this. Cut three. There are some great people in D.C., such as Senator Josh Hawley in Missouri, that are starting to push back. But conservatives need to wake up that this is an existential threat to the United States. And the bureaucracy, even under the Trump administration, is now being weaponized against core traditional American values. And I'd like to make it explicit. Uh, the president of the White House, it's within their authority and power to immediately issue an executive order abolishing critical race theory trainings from the federal government. And I call on the president. Uh, to immediately issue this executive order and and stamp out this destructive, divisive, pseudoscientific ideology at its root. Uh, And I think that it's something that he's denounced, uh, this kind of Black Lives Matter and neo-Marxist rhetoric in places like Portland and Seattle. Uh, But it's time to take action and destroy it within his own administration. Well, that's what President Trump is doing. The president, as put out by the president of the OMB, has directed uh, ensuring that federal agencies cease and desist from using Using taxpayer money to fund these divisive un-American propaganda training sessions. That's from the Office of Management and Budget. So I'm really glad to see this. Now, what was interesting was the reaction of a lot of Christians, especially in the Southern Baptist Convention, which has been laboring under this lie of critical race theory. I want to dive into that a little bit, because if President Trump can do something to dismantle CRT within federal agencies, what should that tell Christians about what we can do to dismantle CRT within a much more important institution? That's the Church of Jesus Christ. We'll talk about it when we come back. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month. And there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or call now, 855-565-2561. 855-565-2561. Many people in developing nations have no access to desperately needed medical care. That's why Mercy Ships brings volunteers aboard our hospital ship, the Africa Mercy, to give the world's forgotten poor the free medical care they need. 
We have an immediate need for registered nurses, especially with a pediatric specialty. As a volunteer nurse, you won't just give life-altering health care, you'll receive so much in return. It's an amazingly rewarding experience. You'll give hope and make a difference in the lives of those who have virtually no access to medical aid. It's such a fantastic thing to do. Everybody who I've met on this ship either wants to come back and do it again or they're already here for the second, third, or tenth time. So what are you waiting for? Show mercy to someone today. I would say go for it. Get more information and learn how to apply by visiting mercyships.org forward slash nurses. That's mercyships.org forward slash nurses. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. President Trump has now said no critical race theory in our federal agencies. And I think this is a fantastic memo that has come out now from the executive office of the president of the Office of Management and Budget. This is just fantastic. They say that these types of trainings that are going on everywhere from the FBI to the Treasury Department not only run counter to the fundamental beliefs for which our nation has stood since its inception, but they also engender division and resentment within the federal workforce. This is an important point. This is that's exactly what it's designed to do. That's exactly what it is designed to do to foment total division, total hatred and total breakdown of any kind of e pluribus unum, which is why every single patriotic American and especially every Christian ought to look at this as the rot that it is, the rot from hell. I have been so happy to see how many black Christians have come forward. And you can see this on Twitter. You can see this on social media and said, this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. We don't believe that every white person is racist. Yes, there are people who are racist here and there, and we we talk about this, but we don't believe that. We're one in Jesus Christ. Now, this is an interesting point to, to make because it was in 2019, you'll recall, that the Southern Baptist Convention passed Resolution 9. And Resolution 9 said that critical race theory is an analytical tool that we can use, blah, blah, blah. Of course, we found out later that the original pastor who had submitted the resolution actually called for the opposite. He called for a condemnation of critical race theory. And Tom Askell from Founders Ministries stood up, you'll recall, at this gathering of the Southern Baptist Convention last year and tried to amend it. I want to play a little bit of this because I want to talk about how critical race theory is damaging the church and in particular Southern the Southern Baptist Convention and talk a little bit about what can be done. But here was Tom Askell presenting an amendment on Resolution 9 at the Southern Baptist Convention last year. This is cut four. For the sake of our witness, I want to add strength to this resolution, make it clearer and more explicitly theological by offering what I hope will be taken as a friendly amendment. So after the first whereas, I would like to offer whereas critical race theory and intersectionality are godless ideologies that are indebted to radical feminism and postmodernism and neo-Marxism, and then add two resolves after the first resolved. Resolved that we remind Southern Baptists that critical race theory and intersectionality emerged from a secular worldview and are rooted in ideologies that are incompatible with Christianity. And be it further resolved that 
we repudiate all forms of identity politics and any ideology that establishes human identity in anything other than the divine creation in the image of God and for all redeemed humanity, our common identity together eternally united to Christ. All right, that is what Tom Askell presented to the Southern Baptist Convention's annual meeting in 2019, trying to amend Resolution 9 before it passed. And then he explained why the amendments mattered. Listen to Cut 5. I just think it's important that we understand the origins of these two ideologies. They do come from godless Marxism, and we also ought to recognize the way that they are commonly used today, not by any members of our committee that has set forth this very carefully worded resolution, but we need to be aware of how these ideologies are being used in our culture, and there are attempts to insert these ideologies in the false way of seeing the world into evangelical life and churches. And so if we make it clear about their origins and reemphasize that we have our identity in Christ and Christ alone, I just think it strengthens this resolution. I hope it will be received as a friendly amendment. Now, he's quite the gentleman, and I think he was doing a very diplomatic presentation, making some very good points on amendments, of course, with my worldview being what it is combined with my personality. I probably would have been a little bit more fiery about it, but I'm glad that he did what he did. I think that he was doing the right thing, but it didn't go over so well because this was how Dr. Curtis Woods, who was chairman of the resolutions committee, responded to that action by Tom Askell. This is cut six. I appreciate the the words and the sentiment of the messenger. Um, We will take this as an unfriendly amendment for this purpose. It is our aspiration in this resolution simply to say that critical race theory and intersectionality are simply analytical tools. They're meant to be used as tools, not as a worldview. It's not true. And we would also say that in light of the time, um, we don't have an opportunity to talk about the origins or, as well as the implications of critical race theory. When you begin to think about worldviews and philosophical constructs, the Apostle Paul uh, appealed to the Epicurean sensualists. He appealed to, to the rationalists on Mars Hill. But that did not mean that Paul imbibed the views of the rationalists or the sensualists. When Apostle Paul quotes from Epimenides in Titus chapter 112, it did not mean that Paul believed that Epimenides' worldview was consistent. What we're saying is that this can be utilized simply as an analytical tool, not a transcendent worldview view above the authority of scripture. And we stand by the strength of this resolution. Awful. A real low point in Southern Baptist history. And I think history will show it to be so as the years go on. Curtis Woods was wrong. He was wrong for saying it. He was wrong for calling it an unfriendly amendment. It was not an unfriendly amendment. And it was kind of a slap in the face, if you think about it, to Tom Askell, because he was trying so hard to be diplomatic and to say this should be considered a friendly amendment. No, I'm considering an unfriendly amendment. Then it comes out that, in fact, the original submission of the resolution had a completely different, in fact, the opposite intent to what it ended up being. And then it passed by the SBC. And what have been the effects of the Southern Baptist 
Cannabis Convention passing Resolution 9 in the last year. Well, let's see. What about all those professors who were fired at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary? This was from the College Fix. Russell Fuller, for example, gave an interview to the College Fix saying that COVID was used as an excuse to get rid of him. And it says this seminary, headed up by Dr. Al Mohler, fired a professor for his repeated criticism of its leftward direction, but used COVID budget cuts as cover to hide its true motives, he claims. Dr. Fuller told the college fix that the seminary was also requiring laid off faculty to sign a non-disclosure agreement in order to receive their severance packages. And he had been on staff as professor of Old Testament interpretation at SBTS for 22 years. So if you don't get on board with the new vibe, you got to go. Sorry, it's been a nice ride. Take off, professors. If you don't like the direction that things are headed with critical race theory, and we've seen, I've talked about this on the show before, how we've had people at Southern Baptist Seminary going all in for CRT. Where do you think this is going to end? That's the question. Where is this going to end? Well, now you have the Conservative Baptist Network, which put out a statement, in fact, strongly supporting President Trump's action against critical race theory. So there is beginning to be a body, a subbody of believers within the Southern Baptist Convention who are fighting back. But it's not enough, I would say, I would argue, to just say it's wrong and to continue to be always just putting forth positive things. It's, it is important for people to come forward and say, this is wrong. This is wrong. This is unbiblical. This is unbiblical. And by the way, can I go back to something that Dr. Woods actually mentioned when he was talking about Paul with the Epicureans and the Stoics? He was refuting the Epicureans and the Stoics. He would go back and read his sermon on Mars Hill. He was saying, you know, you guys think you're so bright and you even have this altar to an unknown God. Let me tell you who God really is. That's what the Christian does. That's what the apostles did. That's what Paul did. That's what we should all do. Dismantle the lie. Don't let a false gospel go forward. And don't let them use these sorts of rhetorical devices to try to say, oh, no, it's just a tool. We don't need a tool. We don't need a tool. Look at the tool, how it's being used on the streets of our cities. Now you have big Southern Baptist Convention leaders who are having their churches still closed. They're still not meeting in their buildings. And some of them have shut down their buildings for the foreseeable future, but they'll go out and march with Black Lives Matter. Oh, that's fine. We're not worried about COVID-19 at all. Not if it involves racial injustice. Yeah, because your marching is going to do so much. You know what your marching does, evangelical leaders? Your marching enables people who hold to this ungodly theory of human development to make inroads into evangelicalism, making you... Useful idiots, which was a favorite term of Vladimir Lenin. Remember, he of the Bolshevik Revolution. So you guys are being used. And I don't know how many people within the confines of evangelicalism understand that they're being useful idiots, but they are. COVID is so dangerous. Love your neighbor. Stay home. Wait a minute. There's a march. Oh, I'm in. Hey, Romney, let's put our masks on and march down the street. Let's give cover to Black Lives Matter, a Marxist queer organization that uses the death of George Floyd, the tragic death of George Floyd, in order to push this dismantling deconstructionist philosophy that will undo this country if Christians don't start fighting back. And I mean fighting back, not just saying this is wrong, not just saying that we should hold to the Bible and we should hold to biblical principles, which dismantle any sort of foundation upon which critical race theory is formulated or accepted, but to fight for biblical Christianity because Christianity is 
the foundation of this country. Never forget that. We can talk all day long about our founding documents, which are phenomenal, and our founders who were wonderful, but don't forget who started America. It was Christians who were being persecuted over in England, coming here, trying to find religious freedom, and they built this nation on the foundation of Scripture. And if we don't go back to the foundation, we're never going to have the America that was handed down to us. That's my point, and that's why we need to be ever vigilant in refuting critical race theory, not only in culture, but especially in our churches. We'll come back on Janet Meffer today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. G.K. Chesterton famously said, when men choose not to believe in God, they do not thereafter believe in nothing. They then become capable of believing in anything. But the question of God's existence, as my next guest points out, is the most significant issue in all of life, not only, most importantly, because of the eternal consequences of denying God and enduring hell, but also because of the temporal consequences of denying him and living out worldviews that can be very dangerous and even violent. So joining me now is Richard Simmons III, founder and executive director for the Center for Executive Leadership. And he is author of the book we'll be talking about, Reflections on the Existence of God. Richard, so good to have you back. How are you? I'm well, Janet. Thank you so much. Thank you. The existence of God has come up quite a bit, especially with the advance of the new atheist movement in the last decade or or so, I would say. But you say that this concept of worldview is really what explains the origin and meaning of life. Can you expand on that a little bit? Because that really is true. You don't just believe something, believe in God or not believe in God. What you do believe about God affects everything you do. Well, it, it, it truly does. In fact, I, I point out that uh, uh, there was a uh, this 55-volume series that came out called The Great Books of the Western World, and it was just a long series of essays just on the most important ideas and concepts that intellectuals and scholars have been studying over the centuries. And interestingly, the longest essay in this, this huge uh, series was on God. Hmm. And when Mortimer Adler, who at the time was an atheist, he later became a Christian, was asked, why is that so? And he said, because more consequences for life flow from that one issue than all others. And then he basically was referring to the fact that it has such an impact on our worldview. Of course, your worldview is really, is, from my perspective, is everything. It's, it's of course, it's the, the lens through which you see life. Um, I guess the simplest way to look at it is kind of your perspective. But the way you view God has more of an impact on your worldview than anything else. Um, if you think about it, when your worldview impacts your, the way you see morality, uh, purpose in life, your source of happiness, even death, uh, you see how this is so significant. And as Tim Keller says, um, uh, the way you see God, he says, it's the foundation of your thinking. 
and the fact that all of your reasoning proceeds from that. So if you don't, if you don't believe in God, it, it truly will impact the way you see purpose in life. If you do believe in God, it has an impact on the way you see purpose in life. So in my mind, there's no greater uh, issue uh, in the world today is the existence of God and how it impacts our lives. For sure. So when we are looking out across the world and we're seeing a real rise in immorality and in violence and in anger and in rebellion, this could, we really do have to connect it, don't we, to the rise in this nation in the number of nuns, N-O-N-E-S, uh, that have been statistically compiled over the last several years, this rise in the number of people who say there is no God, maybe they're agnostics, but there are good deal more atheists nowadays, admitted atheists in the United States, than there have been in decades, if ever. I, I, what is the connection, would you say, between atheism or, or being a nun and the real moral sewer that the United States has become in the last several years? Yeah, in the book, um, uh, I write that the book is 57 short essays, and they're divided into 10 sections. And one of the sections, as, as you just pointed out, is, is the, on the issue of morality. And there is no doubt that uh, the, uh, the rise of atheism, I think, truly has had a huge impact on uh, just the way people uh, see life, the way they see uh, morals. Because if you think about it, Janet, if there is no God, how do you determine what is moral or immoral? Right. Um, I mean, do you look to your feelings? Uh, do you look to your desires? Do you look to your ability to reason? As Richard Dawkins, he put, he says, basically, we're just all dancing to our DNA. Hmm. Um, but it really, and, and, and truly, if you think about it, if there is no God, then um, morality is, is truly subjective. Um, it's just your opinion. You follow your, your DNA. And, and what I say is right or wrong, most people say, well, that's your view. My view of what's right and wrong. And, and it is, it's created a really, really, a real problem in our nation uh, on the way we view um, you know, morality, the way we view evil, uh, the way we, we view meaning in life. And yeah. so all of these things come, come to head, and I write about each one of them in a different section of the book. Do you think that there is really a conquest? Uh, that's not the word I want to use. When, when you're talking about the discovery of truth, how do we go about deciding whether or not something is true these days? Because we're contending with this postmodernist culture that has inculcated a lot of the younger generations with the idea that there is no such thing as absolute truth. So when you take that out of the equation, then it doesn't it necessarily have to be that people are pursuing truth based on their DNA, based on their feelings, or based on whatever forces come to bear on what they're feeling on a given day by clicking on the internet? I mean, the, the discovery of truth just doesn't seem to be very popular. I don't meet a lot of people who are not Christians who are interested in really finding out what is true and letting truth take them down whatever path is going to go and whatever turns it takes to, to discover ultimately what is true, and that would be the existence of God. Is there really any you know mode like that that you're seeing in a lot of non-Christians saying, I want to know the truth no matter what it is? You know, unfortunately, I, no, I think you've, you've really kind of nailed it. I think, you know, truth is, even if you read this in Jeremiah, truth has perished. Hmm. I think that's what's happened in, uh, in our land. I, you know, I talk about, uh, and I think really the second essay of the book, about discovering what is true and how important it is to um, believe responsibly. Um, one of my favorite stories that I write about is Francis Collins and how he came to faith. 
I mean, he was an atheist, and he was very well educated, and he was uh, working as a resident uh, in a hospital, and he was uh, working with this little lady who was dying, and she asked him one day, um, what do you believe, Dr. Collins? Because she was a real committed Christian, and he was stunned because he realized, he said, you know, in science, I study the evidence and come to a conclusion, he said, but when it came to faith, I never looked at any evidence. Right. Which led him on a quest to, to uh, search for God, and he read a bunch of C.S. Lewis, he, read, he even read the Bible, and he became a Christian. But this is what's so significant. He says, <clears throat> what I realize is that most atheists today are just like I was. <laughs> they never pursued the truth wherever it would lead. They were atheists, he says, just like I was, because that's the way I wanted life to be. Yeah. Well, that's important. And and you talk about the problem of evil. What role do you think evil plays in pointing us to the existence of God? For the average secularist, they would say evil is the opposite of what you say God is. But of course, we understand as Christians, the fall of mankind right at the beginning of Genesis, that's what got us into all of this trouble. So how do you go through this issue of evil and say evil actually shows us that God does exist? Yeah, interestingly, the number one argument that people make today that there is no God um, is the fact that there's evil in the world. How could there be such evil, such horrific events going on um, if there's this loving God out there? Um, but clearly, in order, therefore, to be evil in the world, uh, you have to have some type of moral standard of goodness. Right. And where did that moral standard of goodness come from? In fact, C.S. Lewis makes this argument uh, in his book, Mere Christianity, um, that there is a certain oughtness to life, that there's certain ways we ought to live, but where did that come from? And he goes on to say, and I think points out and argues very um, uh, convincingly, that the presence of evil is, in fact, a very strong argument for the existence of God. Yes. Because if there is no God, there is no standard, we're just a bunch of animals, and it's like uh, Darwin himself said, you know, we, we have these animal, these animal passions, these cruel passions that we inherited from uh, our animal ancestors. And so when it gets right down to it, if there is evil, it's really a strong argument for the existence of God, not against it. Well, of course, because you have to have that true north to know where west, east, and south are. And if you don't have any true north, you know, you'd have to have a big vote. Let's just have 7 billion people on the face of the earth vote on what is right and wrong. It's just ridiculous. And we already know from Scripture that the law of God is written on our hearts. God put it there. And that's a very important thing I want to get into in a little bit more detail when we come back from this break. Richard Simmons III with us. Reflections on the existence of God is his book. We'll come back after this. Hi, this is Janet Mefford for Preborn. Candace talks about finding out she was pregnant. Thankfully, an ultrasound provided by Preborn allowed her to hear her baby's heartbeat. The sonogram sealed the deal for me. My baby was like this tiny little spectrum of hope. And I saw his heart beating on the screen. And knowing that there's life growing inside, I mean, that sonogram changed my life. I went from just Candace to mom. Thank you to everybody that has given these gifts. You guys are giving more than money. You guys are giving love. 
Preborn has 10 centers that do not have ultrasound machines. Would you make a leadership gift and sponsor a machine today? These life-saving machines cost more than most centers can afford. Your tax-deductible gift of $15,000 will place a machine in a needy women's center and save countless lives for years to come. To donate, call 855-402-BABY, 855-402-BABY, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month. And there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org JMT. Or call now, 855-565-2561, 855-565. 565-2561. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Richard Simmons III is with me, founder and executive director for the Center for Executive Leadership. He's written a really great collection of essays, reflections on the existence of God. And we were talking about the problem of evil. This always comes up anytime you talk to somebody who's an atheist or an agnostic, Richard, as you know. Here's my question, though. For atheists, they often will use evil as an excuse to deny the existence of God. If God really loved the world, as you Christians say that he does, he would eradicate evil. We know that God dealt with evil at the cross. But what are you left with except evil without any hope of its eradication or ultimate justice against it? In other words, if you look out at the world and you say there's no God that will ever set any of this right, or if something was you know, a huge crime was committed against my family, my daughter was murdered, something horrific like that. There will never be any justice for that. How in the world does that not make atheists say, my worldview is messed up? <laughs> that's, that's very well said. You know, that's the, the problem. And I, I point this out in a number of different essays, how atheism is so unlivable. It's, it's in fact, I, I would really say that the, uh, um, the, uh, real theme of the book is how atheism is one massive contradiction and and it's kind of just like you pointed out um because it's so easy to claim to be an atheist right but it's hard to live your life as if it were true yeah you're it really right. is you're right there is a true contradiction between logic and life and therefore you know over the years i've seen a number of atheists change their minds when they're honest and they see the contradiction of their worldview and they conclude you know this really is not livable uh, I'm just living a, a, a contradiction, and uh, that's really what I try to drive home in this book, to just to show, and this is what Francis Schaeffer did. This is the way he made people realize that when you look at reality, um, the Christian worldview is so, um, uh, har- I guess you could say, harmonious with the real world we live in, and atheism 
is just a, a, a clear contradiction. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. What about the issue of life, Richard, when we're talking about what human beings are and we have these struggles in our culture right now over the sanctity of human life, both on the front end with abortion and also now increasingly on the back end of life where you're having discussions about euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide and these sorts of things. Can you comment on your thoughts about life, why life matters, what human beings really are. And obviously, you're going to get different answers from an atheist than you would from a Christian. But how do you see that problem kind of playing itself out? Well, this is another great example of just it being a massive contradiction, because really, what is a human being? What is human life if there is no God? I mean, B.F. Skinner says we're just a machine who's basically responding mechanically to stimuli. Hmm. Um, In Charles Darwin's book, The Origin of Species, you know, he talks about natural selection. The the uh, in the in the uh, the subtitle of the book. Listen to this: it's means of natural selection as the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. Um, and basically, he says there is no God, and therefore the least favored races become extinct, including uh, including the black population. <laughs> it's 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 amazing just what atheism does to human life. It diminishes it. And it, it really helps you understand why, if, if there is no God, um, uh, human, human life is cheap. It really is not worth anything. Uh, we're just kind of sophisticated animals, and th- therefore we should not treat humans any better than we would basically treat steers in a slaughterhouse. Yes. Ugh. But, you know, you're right about that. Although, if they were to be consistent, wouldn't it seem more consistent that the atheist would want to keep people alive more because this is all there is? There is no God. Uh, you know, you don't see a lot of atheists committing suicide because they've lost hope. They they want to cling, many of them, to their lives as long as they possibly can, just like anybody else. So why wipe out life if there's nothing else? I mean, that it's just nihilism at some point. Well, it, 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 it is, for sure. In fact, one of the essays I talk about, it's, it's in the section on human experience, which is just, it's, the whole thing's fascinating. Right. Yeah. But I talk about death and the atheist. And, you know, most people would think atheists uh, would not be, fear of, uh, not be afraid of dying. Um, you know, you die and you go into everlasting nothingness. And, uh, and yet it's amazing, Janet, if you read that section, uh, how many of the, of the famous atheists in the last hundred years uh, we're terrified of death and dying, hmm. from, from Freud to Darwin, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, Albert Camus. In fact, Camus, uh, I, I write it, there's an essay on him. He became a Christian right at the end of his life. Most people don't know this, but so many of them are terrified of dying because there's the possibility that they may be wrong. I mean, and I think part of the reasons is because, you know, Ecclesiastes 3.14, it says that God has put eternity in our hearts. Yes. There's something in us that I think we recognize innately, that we are eternal beings, and therefore, if you don't understand what's, what, what comes at death, you're going to be terrified. Oh, sure. Makes a lot of sense. And you think about Romans 1 saying that, you know, we know that God exists from creation. We can see the things in front of us that have been made by God. And and it's very difficult to explain away the beauty of creation by saying it was one big accident. Although people do it, they certainly do it, but it's not consistent (laughs) whatsoever. And, you you know, it's interesting, Richard, when you talk about how the human experience points to the existence of God, you reference things like the mystery of love, the question of beauty. I know there have been apologetic arguments dealing with the issue of consciousness and how the atheist can't really address why we have consciousness consciousness, these sorts of things. What do you look at across the human experience that you say, 
hey, atheist, you need to consider this aspect of the human experience as being something that should make you rethink your position? Uh, I, I think that ultimately, uh, Janet, I would point to the issue of love. Um, you know, Viktor Frankl says it's the deepest yearning of the human heart, and yet where does love fit into uh, you know, a, a godless world? Mm-hmm. And again, you go back to the, the atheists who've really studied this, and they have to acknowledge that love basically uh, is an illusion. Um, it's like, again, going back to uh, Skinner. They have Skinner, he says, we're like machines. We're totally physical beings, and machine and physical matter can't love. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, Daniel Webner of Harvard says love is the effect of the unconscious physical causes. Uh, Francis Crick says we're nothing but a, love is nothing but a biological reaction. And so, in fact, one of the people that I talk about was a guy by the name of A.N. Wilson, who most people thought was going to become the next C.S. Lewis. And then he changed his mind about Christianity and basically went back to atheism. And he was real close friends with Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, and they were elated. The problem is, a couple of years later, he changed his mind and came back to Christianity. And one of the reasons was, uh, he said that people insist that we are, he, he used this term, simply anthropoid apes. He says we cannot, they cannot account for the basic experience of life, most particularly love. <laughs> and so if you are going to be consistent as an atheist, then love really does not exist. And yet that's just crazy. That just goes against our everyday life experience. We all love. And so it's, it's, it's impossible to live that way. True. And if you feel hatred, which people do, hatred also, it would seem, validates the morality of Christianity. Because if you get mad at things like injustice, well, why would you be mad at injustice? I mean, either whatever emotion you're having as a human being, it seems to me on some level that confirms the existence of God. You're either going back to the fact that you have to acknowledge a true north or you're acknowledging that maybe Christianity really does have something to say that answers some of these questions that the atheists can't answer according to their worldview. Yeah, I, tell, I have a great story in the book about a woman by the name of Andrea Dilly, and she grew up uh, over in Africa with missionary parents, and she she rejected God uh, as she grew into adulthood because of all the injustice that she saw in the world, and the way people were treated, and and just there's no way there's a God. And then one day she finds herself in an argument with a guy, and she's arguing for uh, justice, and he says there is no justice if if, if there is no God, and she she began to realize that she was arguing with this guy from a theistic uh, point of view and a theistic worldview, and she said that that eventually is what led her back to the faith, was because she realized that if she was going to argue for justice, there has to be a God uh, in order for that argument to make sense. Yeah, it makes total sense. And and ultimately, when we're talking about the existence of God, we have to talk about the God who is, not just any old God that you fashion up in your imagination. Theism is one thing and Christianity is another. But as you you really point out in a very important sense here, Christianity is a historical religion. It's not something that you believe in Christ by faith, which we do, but it's based on real historical evidence. That to me is something that is really good, I think, to go back to with the atheist and say, check out the claims of the Bible. Don't just think that this is some kind of feeling you have to work up or some sort of emotion that you have to have in order to be a Christian, but it's based on real history, real historical events. Christ really did die on the cross and he really did rise from the dead. Well, you've got to check out the book, Reflections on the Existence of God. Richard Simmons III with us. Richard, so good to have you here and thank you very much for being with us again. 
Janet, it was a real honor. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you, too. God bless you. Thank you for joining us on Janet Mefford today. Always glad to have you along. We'll see you next time.